Please, would you keep that passage open from Matthew as we continue to look at Matthew. Uh, we're picking up on the gospel. This is our default gospel that we're looking at, and we drop into every now and then, so that's where we are. So Matthew chapter 11 to the passage that Sandra read to us. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that you will help us as we engage with your word. Father, please help us to engage with our minds and our hearts, with the whole of our being. And Father, please help us to be responsive to what you're saying. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you, but sometimes I come across people and I think, you need to grow up. Do you ever have that experience? Grown person, and they act with such appalling immaturity, you think, grow up. They have such fragile personalities that nothing is ever their fault. And you can never do anything good enough. So you do something and they say that's not good enough. And so you do it differently and it's still not good enough. They'll never admit that anything is their fault. It's always somebody else. It's always something else. It's always circumstances. And if you're involved, it's you as well. We use words like narcissistic to describe people like that. They are immature. They need to grow up. And that kind of behavior is incredibly destructive, isn't it? It's destructive of relationships. It's also self-destructive because in the end, so often people like that find that they have to shrivel. They don't receive the things that they want. They can never achieve the depth of relationships they want and so they become more and more shriveled in themselves and yet fail to recognize and face up to the fact that a lot of the issue lies with them. They're like little children. That kind of behavior that we know happens and we tolerate it up to a degree in little children because little children are little children and sometimes they are thoroughly objectionable but we know, or at least we pray, that they will grow out of it. But when you find that kind of behavior in an adult, it's something else, isn't it? And you know, there is a spiritual version of this. That's what Jesus is talking about in verse 16 when he says, How shall I describe this generation? What are you like? How do you see yourself? How do you evaluate yourself on a spiritual scale of 1 to 10? Let me tell you what you're like. You are spiritual narcissists. You are immature. You need to grow up. You look at yourself and see yourself as being so exalted, so spiritually superior, so knowledgeable. But in fact, you are no better than little children. The kind of behavior that's exhibited when somebody in particular, a child in particular, wants to exercise control. 
I'm not playing with you because you didn't do that right. <laughs> I'm not your friend. And then they change behavior and they still won't be their friend because they didn't do it right the other way. There is no way to win because immature people want to be in control all the time. Jesus says, you're like that. John the Baptist came, and he came with a message of repentance, and he came in those extraordinary clothes. He was a man of enormous focus with a powerful message of repentance, and it cut to the heart of people, and it challenged people. And he lived the life that was so focused that everything about him matched that and People could see it in his followers as well. So focused on what they were doing and what they were about. So serious about God. He didn't mix with the rich and the famous. He didn't drink. And you said, that's far too extreme. We don't want a religion like that. It's possible, you know, to be too extreme in religion, too challenging. We can't accept that. There must be something wrong with John the Baptist. In fact, I think there was something mentally wrong with him, if not spiritually wrong, and we want to stay our distance from him. We don't want a religion like that. God would never demand those kinds of things of us. God would never upset us in that kind of way. So they stand over John the Baptist and judge him and with their supercilious approach, dismiss him. That's what you're like with John the Baptist. But then I came along, the Son of Man, as Jesus self-describes himself, and you say, he claims to be from God. But have you seen the people he mixes with? Tax collectors and sinners. Somebody who was truly from God would never mix with those kinds of people. He goes to their parties. He drinks. He shares food with them. We can't possibly have anything to do with somebody like that. Jesus is saying to the people of his day, you are immature. You think you're so wise, so clever, so spiritually insightful. You have your history, the exodus, the prophets, the kings, the workings of God amongst you. Those hundreds of years of experience of God dealing with you. And you are so pumped up with your own religious devotion and you stand above John the Baptist and you dismiss him. And you analyze me with your cleverness and your insight. And you said, this man is not up to it. How disgraceful. How beneath us. They're like the celebrity chef. Presented with a meal who pokes at it. 
and analyzes it and dismisses it. That's you, says Jesus. You think you know better than John the Baptist and you know better than me. You stand scrutinizing us and judging us and nothing's ever good enough for you, is it? Well, says Jesus, let me tell you what you're really like. You see, if you were really wise, you would have heard the message of John the Baptist and saw what he was doing, and you would have said, God is present amongst us in what John the Baptist is saying. This is the voice of God himself. And you would have seen the things that I was doing, the miracles that I've done, the healings, the restoration of lives, and you would have said, if you were truly wise, God is amongst us. But you didn't, and you don't. Verse 19, wisdom is proved right by her deeds, but they don't see that, do they? Because the truth of the matter is that they're not wise. They're not discerning. Let me tell you what you really like, Jesus says. Do you remember Tyre and Sidon? Way back. They were such powerful cities. They exalted themselves. The king of Tyre saw himself as enthroned in glory and splendor and wisdom greater than even God himself, more magnificent, more extraordinary, more powerful than the God of Israel. Tyre and Sidon exemplify spiritual arrogance. And do you remember Jesus says what happened to them? God brought them down to the dust and humiliated them. Well, let me tell you this, you cities that have seen me doing what I'm doing, Bethsaida and Capernaum. If the things that had happened amongst you had happened in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. But you haven't. That's how spiritually bankrupt you are. And therefore, I tell you, says Jesus, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than it will be for you. Verse 22. In case you wondered. And do you remember Sodom? Sodom exemplifies an utter disregard for the value of human life and dignity. With no moral scruples whatsoever. And do you remember how God destroyed them? Well, let me tell you, Jesus says. If the things that you had experienced in what I've been doing have been done in Sodom, they would have been repent. They would have repented. So I tell you, verse 24, it will be more tolerable for Sodom on the day of judgment than it is for you. We need to learn from this because we are all prone to spiritual 
arrogance. All of us. It is one of the manifestations of what we mean when we talk about sin. That kind of pride that means that we appraise Jesus. We stand above his word and we analyze it and we bring our cleverness to bear upon it and our insights and our spiritual antennae that work in us. And we look at what he's saying and we scrutinize and we analyze and we pick at it. As if we were qualified arbiters of divine truth. Just like the generation of Jesus' time. And that kind of response to Jesus and his word is utterly deadly. God does not respond to spiritual arrogance, however it's framed. And do you know Jesus is pleased? (laughs) Do you notice that in verse 25? Have a look at verse 25. It's an extraordinary verse. It's extraordinary in a number of ways. One of the ways it's extraordinary is you get an insight into the intimacy of relationship between Jesus and his Father. And he says, Father of heaven and earth, I praise you. It's an insight into what it means to be a child of God that we can come because of Jesus and we can say, Father, that is how we should pray. But do you notice what he prays? Jesus is here giving thanks. In verse 25, at that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned. He's not criticizing cleverness. He's not saying don't read books. What he's attacking is that idolization of our intellect and our knowledge. And whenever that happens, then the door begins to close in terms of knowing God. When we bring our cleverness to bear, God does not respond and Jesus is pleased. Because that's not how it works. That is never how it's worked. Time and time again in the Old Testament, the writers of the Old Testament, the prophets, the psalmists, they say about how God does not respond to the arrogant in heart. But he responds to those who are humble. Those who recognize their spiritual poverty and their need. Jesus did not come for the arrogant. He didn't. And nothing that he will ever do will ever be good enough for spiritual narcissists. Nothing. If the miracles that were done in Capernaum and Bethsaida by Jesus himself didn't convince them, if you're the kind of person who's sitting around and saying, God, you've got to convince me, the chances are you will be saying that till the day you die. That's not how it works. So how does it work and how should we respond? Look at what Jesus says. I praise you, verse 25, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them 
to little children. Yes, Father, that's what you were pleased to do. If we want to engage with God, if we want to experience him, if we want to know him, then the first thing that we need to do is to abandon our arrogance. That sense of we are above it, that we are the judges of God, that we are the assessors of Jesus, that we are the arbiters of divine truth. We will never come to know the truth that way. Our cleverness will never lead us to the truth. Notice how Jesus goes on. Verse 27, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Father, Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. It is in the end of the day not a matter of how clever you are. Or how many books we've read. How, how insightful we are. It depends upon God revealing himself to us. And he responds always to those who become like children. Who recognize their own inadequacy and their own dependence and that they are never going to be able to work it all out themselves. And they don't stand above God and above His Word. The first thing we need to do is to abandon, abandon our arrogant confidence in our own abilities. The second thing is we need to abandon hope in our world. Somebody has described the world as a mood, <laughs> a way of thinking about things. We need to abandon any hope that at the end of the day, by pursuing the world and its agenda, that that will give us peace and hope and satisfaction and fulfillment, that we will discover our destiny and our true selves. And so if we pursue our career or money or even religion, it won't work. It will always demand more. Do more. Do more. Try harder. Try more. And there becomes a kind of weariness, that endless searching, and then that burden of, and now this, and now the next hurdle to overcome, and the next challenge, and then there's the next one, and then there's the next one, and you go on and on and on, pursuing that elusive something that never appears, never materializes. You think at times it's just around the corner. If I just go one street further down on this route, it will be there. And you turn the corner and it's not there. It's slipped away. We need to abandon hope in the world. We need to abandon our arrogance. We need to abandon the idea that we can pursue what it is that deep down all of us are looking for. And instead, we need to respond to Jesus' invitation. Notice again verse 27 at the end of that. No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Some of you have been around Christian circles for a long time. have spent endless time discussing that, haven't you? Are there some people that Jesus doesn't choose? 
Am I one of the chosen? What does this verse mean? Let me tell you what it means. It's really simple. Anybody who abandons their own spiritual arrogance and stops looking at the world and finding meaning and purpose there, and anybody with a humble heart comes to Jesus, he says, come, come. He chooses to reveal God to anyone who comes. And so there's the invitation. Come. Have you come to Jesus? Have you come to Jesus because you've recognized the limits of your own abilities? Have you come to Jesus because you've recognized that at the end of the day for all that's wonderful about our world, because it's God's creation? that nevertheless that mood that says you have to do it this way. Pursue religion, pursue career, pursue whatever it is, that it's never enough. And so if you come to Jesus, why not? He cares for you. Do you notice what he says in verse 29, 28, 29. He says, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, because I'm gentle and humble in heart. He cares about you. Religion does not care about anybody. Religion cares about performance, about measures of success, about how well people are doing. But Jesus cares about people. He cares about you. Why would you not go to him? He cares about you. And he offers us rest, true rest. We begin to discover who we truly are when we come to Jesus. We begin to realize what the true Graham is or whoever you are. We begin to feel some sense that we are at home, that this is who we truly are and where we should be because we've been brought into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that means that however disruptive your life might be and at times it will be, and however much of a struggle it might be. And however much turmoil there might be going on underneath all of that, there is a sense of rest. Because we are known by Jesus. Because we're in relationship with God. Because he's put his stamp of love and approval on us. Because he has dealt with all the mess that stood between us and him, he set us free and made us his children. Why wouldn't you go to Jesus? He's the only one who truly cares for us. He's the only one who can give rest. And he's the only one who can set you free. If you go any other way, 
it will at some points be about performance and there will be the burden of having to achieve. Happens in religion. There's the next thing to do. The next marker to be achieved, to demonstrate your spiritual status, to ingratiate yourself with God. Only Jesus can set you free. Notice what he says. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. He sets us free. Free from performance. Free to be in a relationship with God as our Father. So why would you not turn to Jesus? Why would you not listen to his invitation to come? Why would you spurn that? Why would you walk away from that? Why would you look somewhere else? Why? Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. You're at the point where you're weary of your own strivings to achieve. Make yourself feel that you are good enough for God. Leave it behind. Come to me, says Jesus, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is like no one offers anything like that. Nothing can substitute for that. The invitation is to come. Let's bow our heads and be quiet. Let's have a moment to be quiet. I, I have no idea what God's been doing in your heart. You may have been thinking about lunch. I don't know. But maybe, maybe, because God is a God who speaks. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God who is at work amongst us this morning and maybe in some of our hearts this morning. There's been a challenge. And we need to respond to that. Maybe it's a challenge to our arrogance, our superiority. Maybe for some of us it's that we've lost sight of how precious we are to Jesus. And, and we're trying to make it with our relationship with God. We're striving to perform and we've lapsed back into religion. And we need to hear that call of Jesus to come. To come. And find rest. And perhaps for some of us, we need to say thank you. Thank you, Father, that although when I look at my life and see what it has been and indeed what it is, I recognize my own inadequacy and I recognize my own sinfulness. But you have revealed yourself 
to me. And I am your child and you are my father. And I am overwhelmed by that. Father, I praise you that you don't make yourself known to those who are clever because I'm not clever enough. You don't make yourself known to those who are so spiritually attuned and have reached the height of godliness. I thank you, Father, that you make yourself known to little children, people who recognize their need. Father, thank you that you have heard the prayers of our hearts. Thank you. And Father, I pray that in every single one of us this morning, Father, please, would you work in such a way that we leave this morning recognizing that we are little children, but we are loved by you, and you are our Father, and you have raised us beyond the greatest by making us your children. And so may we go out into this week and into our life, whatever that means, full of hope and joy, rejoicing in who we are. And we ask this in Jesus' name.